a brief slight of Stalin sent Alexander Solonitsyn to prison for eight years. His prison life was worse than anything we can imagine. In an Arctic wasteland, he labored as a mason from dawn until dark. This world-famous author had no pen, no paper, and no permission to write. He had no family to visit since his parents were dead and his wife divorced him. Surely such unjustified suffering would drive his gifted, this gifted, sensitive man to insanity. Instead, it led him to self-analysis. He looked down at his own vanity, superficiality, and instead it led him, I'm sorry, and his selfishness. As to his time in prison, he blessed the prison for having become part of his life. Shortly before leaving prison, he penned a famous prayer letter to, to be published in Vogue. He praised God and confessed how simple it was for him to live, was it to live and how easy, how easy to believe in him. How could a man with such social consciousness and such awareness of the injustice of life in his country be so simple in his analysis of life in prison. Such response to the situation came only because he was committed to his God, no matter what. In Luke chapter 9, now that we're beginning a new chapter here, we find Jesus calling and illustrating such Disciples struggle to understand what Jesus meant to discover how, what Jesus meant and to discover how to live life that way. As we study this chapter, it's going to challenge you. I hope it challenges you to examine your own commitment and how it measures up besides Christ's demand for commitment that leads to the cross. This morning, though, as we dive into these first 17 verses of chapter 9, the following things will be made Christ has committed his kingdom work to his disciples, whom he expects to carry on the ministry he started. Secondly, commitment doesn't, doesn't mean finding answers to personal questions for personal advancement. And thirdly, power in mission must be accompanied by care for human need. So before we get into God's word, let's ask him to, to bless um, this morning's service, or this word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are um, thankful that, you've all, that you have us here, Lord, and, and we commit this time completely to you, Lord. Lord, uh, you know exactly what's going on in each of our lives. You know where our hearts lie, whether they're near or far, Lord. And I pray for now that you fill this room with your spirit, Lord, that everyone here will just suspend all the things that are going on in their lives and and just focus on you, Lord, just to... to 
to fall on, on, on their knees and, and just dedicate this time to you, Lord. Let me hear from you. Lord, this can be a stressful time. This can be a stressful season for, for many, Lord, but Lord, may your grace and mercy and fall on them and they may they see you amongst all the junk, all the issues and problems, Lord. May they see your love, your mercy again, your compassion, your love. And may they glorify you for it. Again, bless this time. Use me as your instrument, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. God's word there, the word of God says, Summoning the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He then sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Every house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. This chapter begins what, with what is commonly known as the commissioning of the Twelve. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 6, there in verses uh, through 16, we saw Jesus ordain 12 specific men from all his followers. And after he had done that, he began to travel with them, again, from town to town, from village to village, took them with him wherever he ministered. So by this time, those 12 men had seen, heard, learned, and experienced a lot. So what we see him doing here now is commissioning them. Now the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines commission as an authorization or command to act in a prescribed manner, or to perform prescribed acts. So see, what the Lord is doing here now is that he was putting them in charge of their own ministry in order to practice what they had learned. But I want you to notice something, that before sending them out, Jesus did two things. He gave and he sent. He first gave them the power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. Again, I want to emphasize here, the emphasis here is that he authorized, he empowered, and he authorized. Power is the ability to accomplish a task. And authority is the right to do it. 
And Jesus gave both of these to his apostles. And then he sent him to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. This here was their assignment. This here was their task. Yet, where they preached didn't matter as much as what they were to preach, which was this. The king had arrived. Jesus, the Messiah, was present. His kingdom is different than what was expected. He gathers his kingdom community of those who will repent and believe. Now, juxtaposed with the gospel message was a work of spiritual and physical healing to the person who believed and accepted it by faith. So you see, just as they had seen him ministering to people, it was now their turn to do it. The message he preached about the kingdom of God, they were to go out and preach it too. And as he had often healed the sick, they were to go out and preach it too. And, and as he had cast out demons and evil spirits, they would also. God has given each one of us a special calling. When we accept that calling, he commissions us. He commissions you to fulfill that calling. Now, yes, it's scary because you don't know how you're going to survive. You don't know how you're going to make it. But see, he prepares you throughout that time. Until, that, until he calls you, he prepares you. He shows you. And you, you start to see, you, you, you see that he does provide and he does take care. And, but when it comes down to when it, it's time to take that big step of faith and, and actually accept that calling, it, it, it does. It takes a lot of, you, you, you have to just take it all in, 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 in step and you have to remember what he has done so far and, and just trust in him. You know, we, when we left our, our former church, we asked a bunch of people to come in and, and help us out and to come in and, and join us and from our former church. And, and we noticed that, that was, it wasn't going to happen. Now, I could have made an excuse. I could have said, hey, you know what, forget it. You know, no one's going to come. No one's going to, it's just going to be a big failure. But I knew that this is what he called me to do. And I, and Robin and I, we, we were ready, we were prepared, and we knew we just said, okay, it's, even if it's just us, the family, we're going to continue to do it. And, and well, again, I, I don't want to get all into the story, but he's blessed us. You know, we've, we've met some great people here. You know, we've been, able to, we've been able to minister to you and you've ministered to us, whether you know it or not. And... Every day, every, every week, there are challenges. And we don't know what next week will bring. And even, and even now, there are certain struggles. You know, there are certain things like we're not sure how, 
you know, how again we're going to pay the rent for next month, but the Lord, He provides. We absolutely believe in, in, in that famous quote where God guides, He provides. And I want you to believe that for yourselves as well. If you feel that He's called you, for instance, in the mission field, but you don't know how that's going to happen. Again, just put it at his feet and just say, Lord, I know you're going to do it and take that step of faith. If he's called you to start a ministry, if he's called you to, to start a men's Bible study here or to, you know, just do it. You know, it's not going to, it, it may not be exactly as you hoped it would be or that you think it's going to look like, but it will be what exactly what the Lord wants it to be and what the Lord wants it to look like. So again, just as these men have been called, have been commissioned to go out and do a work, he calls us to do the same. Now the Lord went on to tell them they were to tra- how they were to travel and what they were to do. They were to travel light and live very simply. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. This would be as if I told one of my kids, hey, you're going to go to New York, and don't take anything with you. Don't worry about money. I, you, here's a plane ticket, but you know, don't take any money. Don't take any clothes. Don't take anything with you. Just go, and just trust the Lord's going to provide for you. Now, for, <laughs> I know... For, probably for them and for many of you, you'd be like, man, you're crazy, Angel, for doing that to your kids. You know, but this is essentially what he was doing here. Jesus was telling him, don't worry about it. Just go. Now, why, why would he do that? Why would he tell them to go without taking at least a bag of clothes, taking at least a loaf of bread? He did that because he wanted them to trust God to provide for their daily needs. And also, wherever they went, they were to accept whatever hospitality was offered. Now, the idea behind this was that he didn't want them to go from house to house looking for the best-looking bed or the most comfortable bed, the most you know, stocked-up kitchen, or even the nicest host point was whatever the first home they stepped into they were to stay there until they left he didn't want them to go again house hopping nevertheless again the Lord understood from experience that there'd be places that wouldn't welcome them because of the message they were preaching They weren't rejecting them. They were rejecting the message. And how often, again, we we take it personal when we share a special message, when we just tell people that Jesus loves you, has a plan for you, cares for you, he knows what's going on. You know, don't, you know, 
trust in him. And then we get offended when we say, oh, you give us that dirty look or we, you know, they say something bad. Like, what are you talking about? I don't need your prayers. You know, I don't need your thoughts and prayers. We have to understand that it's not us. It's the message. The message of hope. The message of redemption. The message of everlasting life. The message of Jesus Christ. So, if they were to be, he told them that if wherever they went, if they were rejected, wherever this happened, they were to leave that town. And then he instructed them that when they did that, to shake the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. Now, this action was a familiar gesture by Jews whenever they left a Gentile territory, signifying complete separation from the people that live there. So essentially what this meant was that you rejected the message. Well, God has rejected rejection until you you know until you accept it, you know want anything to do with you he, he doesn't and I know it's a hard concept it's a, something hard to think about but you know he watches out for his children and you know I, I again I believe he has a plan and a purpose for everybody um, but he he draws near to those who draw near to him and when a people accept that message, when a people, a town, a village, a, a city, a state, a nation comes to him in, in humbleness, and, and you know the verse, he hears them. He answers their prayers, and, 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 they, and they, become, they get, become blessed. But if a whole town, a whole nation, a whole whatever it may be rejects him, He's like, okay, you don't want anything to do with me. That's fine. I'm going to go to the next place where they do want to get blessings for me. Well, again, this, that was what that signified. And so he told, that's what he told him to do. Well, it then says in verse 6 that those 12 men did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went out, proclaimed the good news, and were healing everywhere and healings and, and healings were and healing everywhere they answered Jesus' call to the mission and they fulfilled it with power and authority that he gave to them so as Jesus and his apostles went out and ministered we then go on to verse uh, 7 Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, 
but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. So again, as all this was going on, as Jesus and his apostles were going out and, and doing all these um, healing the sick and, and ministering and driving out demons, he was hearing about it. He, he heard everything that was going on. Now, the last time Herod was mentioned was all the way back in chapter 3, verse 20. And there we were informed that he had locked John up in prison, John the Baptist. Now, some time between then and this point, he had viciously murdered. It was, it was ugly. He murdered him because of an oath, because of a dumb oath he had made to his stepdaughter. Now you can read all about it in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. But here's the thing. He never intended to kill John. In fact, according to Mark there, he had come to respect John and actually liked to listen to him. Yet the moment he was backed into a corner, he had to choose either to do what was right or to do what was clearly wrong. And sadly, Herod chose the latter. He buckled under pressure and decided that his reputation was more valuable than the life of an innocent. He enjoyed having John there in prison. It was almost, he was almost like, like a, a personal pet. But he knew that every time he talked to him, it, it, it also perplexed him. He liked having him around, and he knew that he hadn't done anything wrong. Remember, the only reason he imprisoned him was because he wanted to shut him up from telling everybody that he had married his brother's wife. So he just wanted, he didn't want the, the word to keep, keep going out. So, you know, when I, when I went through that study, I mentioned that, that better way than the, to stop the word going out and to completely shut the person out, isolate them. So that's what he did. Again, he enjoyed having him around, and, and it wasn't his intention to kill him. But uh, unfortunately, he was in a bad situation, and he opened his mouth, and he said something dumb, and he couldn't. Now he was in a predicament. How many times have we done the same thing? We put ourselves in a predicament that, man, start compromising our morals, our ethics, our values, our, our beliefs. You know, it, it, we have to be careful about where we're at, the decisions we make, the choices. I'm not going to put myself in a position, in a place where I'm going to have to make one of these bad choices or make a choice whether to do wrong or right or, you know, I, I'd rather be in a place where I know I'm going to do the right thing. You know, he, we have to learn, again, from these lessons. Lessons here, again, are very clear. 
he was in a bad place. He was now he was stuck, you know, between a, a rock and a hard place, and he made the right, the wrong, the wrong decision, and now it cost him the life of an innocent man. Now, maybe at first he tried to rationalize his decision to to have John killed by telling himself, you know what? Okay, I didn't want to do this, but at least I'm not going to be able to hear him tell, remind me and that I'm such a sinful person. At least that, you know, he's, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I can keep doing what I wanted to do in my sinfulness and, and I don't have to be reminded. But here's the thing, and here's what I hope that you understand and get. When someone places a mirror in front of you for the very first time, it's impossible to forget what you really look like. He was, his sin was exposed. And he saw it for what it is. And John told him, he exposed the truth. And once you know the truth, you can't, you can't say, well, I didn't know it. It's there. You've been, you know it. And, and, Again, God is going to judge you for whether you lived by that truth or you ignored it. When we're told that when John was informed or Herod was informed of the rumors and speculations regarding a powerful preacher performing amazing miracles, it says that he was perplexed. Now, one reason for this was because of what people were saying about Jesus. Some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, while others suggested that it was Elijah or one of the other ancient prophets from the Old Testament. However, the thought, the, the one thought that troubled him the most, that perplexed him the most, that confused him, that baffled him the most, was the possibility that John had come back from the dead. The other reason he was perplexed was that he couldn't get over the guilt of knowing that he had killed a righteous and holy man. You see, the memory of John, the memory of, of that man that he had countless of conversations with, troubled him. So even though Herod had silenced that fearless voice by beheading John, he was still haunted by the power of that life. Well, one of the ways that Herod tried to quell his anxiety was by reminding others, telling others, yeah, that's the guy I beheaded. That's the guy I killed. That's the guy I chopped his head off. But see, here's the thing again. His question who is this I hear who is this I hear such things about reveals that not only was he curious about the Lord, but also this. He was fearful of what he might discover. It was his curiosity that moved Herod to want to see Jesus, but not in a sincere seeker way. He wasn't sincerely wanting to, to, to hear from him, to sit at his 
feed and to, to listen and to, to gain truth and, and to understand what God really wanted for him. No. He either wanted to indulge idle curiosity or he just wanted to do the same to Jesus as he had done to his cousin, as he had done to John the Baptist. Well, Herod kept trying to see Jesus, but he never did. Not until before the Savior's crucifixion. Now it was fearfulness that led him to wonder, who is this? You see, it says there again, going back to Mark, it says in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 20, that Herod feared John. So it seems likely from his experiences and his conversations with John that maybe Herod had a sense that the same would happen if he spoke with Jesus, if he met with Jesus. He had that certain fear. And see, my brothers and sisters, see, my friends, this is the thing. This is the power of a spirit-filled life. The Lord causes those who think they're more powerful to tremble with fear, to tremble without even having ever met him. Therefore, whether you're in the world or whether you're in the church, never underestimate the influence of a person full of the Holy Spirit. Not even the strongest smartest, talented, wisest, and richest person in the world can stand against such a person. When someone is being moved and led and by, the, by the Holy Spirit, nothing at all will be able to stop that person from continuing his mission. People will fear can't stand up. No one can stand up to God. People have tried. They've all failed. Since the beginning of time, people have tried. Stand up against God, and every single person has failed. Know that. If you're being, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and He's leading you, no one can stand against you. Now, in the next portion we're about to read, Jesus once again challenges his 12 apostles. So let's again go there, back to our passage and pick up in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed it. Late in the day, the twelve apostles approached and said to him, Send the crowd away, so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a desolate or deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said. 
unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Luke first tells us here about, about when the apostles returned from their mission tour. And they were filled with excitement. They were filled with, with stories. All the successes they had. They reported it all to Jesus. But Luke, but you see that Luke tells us that there's no reply from Jesus. He re, Jesus reports no reply. He just moves on to the next action. He moves on to the next thing. I'm sure he was happy for them, and I'm sure he was, you know, he was blessed that they were blessed and that others were blessed, but the work wasn't done. It needed, there was more work to be done. So he took them the next step of their training mission to a city called Bethsaida. Going there, going to Bethsaida was intended to be a withdrawal, a time for private prayer with God and private instructions for his disciples. But just as he knew that power had been drawn from him, when he asked who touched my clothes, he also knew that his disciples needed a, re- a time of replenishment and refreshment following their, min- their season of ministry. And this is what I want to tell all of you who are involved in ministry or have been serving for a very, very long time. Wherever it is you're serving, whether it's in Sunday school class, family, or your friends at school, it's extremely important to allow the Lord to escort you into quiet times and solitary places in order to recharge the batteries of your faith. So although this was intended to be a sort of retreat, the crowds had different intentions. And even though they interrupted that privacy, Jesus turned to the crowds and continued to follow his general pattern of ministry among them, teaching them the kingdom of God and healing the sick. Now, in spite of everything that they'd been through, the twelve had not yet fully comprehended what Jesus was about. Still didn't get it. Jesus saw, or Jesus, though, 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 saw through the needs of the crowd, had compassion and met the need. In contrast, the disciples saw the need and wanted to send them away so that the crowd could provide for themselves. 
the phrase remote place shows that they weren't actually in the city, but in the region for which Bethsaida served as one of the main commercial centers of the area. So not wanting to let a good lesson pass by, Jesus put the burden of ministry back onto the disciples' shoulders. These men had just returned from working miracles, casting out demons, and preaching under the power and authority of Jesus. And yet now they were claiming they had no power to minister to a crowd that needed food. In their minds, their only solution lay in a commercial venture, buying food for the multitude, something beyond their financial means. Jesus wanted them to find something other than the world's way to meet their needs. You see, he wanted them to call on the power that they had depended on during their mission tour. But instead, they complained. We cannot, we cannot do such an impossible task. When people come to you, I'm speaking to everyone here. I'm speaking to those who, who are listening and, and watching. When people come to you asking for help with a hard situation or an answer to a troubling question, do you send them away saying, you know what? Call the church. Call the pastor and see if you can talk to one of them or, or talk to him or maybe the pastor's wife because, you know what? I can't help you. The problem is that some of you don't think you have very much. What good will my few sardines and couple of wheat thins be? What can that offer them? What can that do for them? We ask. In light of such a huge need. But as he did to his disciples... Jesus wants to tell you, you feed them. Even though your understanding may be limited and your resources seem scant, put them in, the, put them in my hands and watch me multiply them miraculously to touch someone else deeply. While the disciples' bewilderment is easily understood. From their perspective, feeding 5,000 people, or even more if, you, if only men were literally, were literally intended here, was going to be a tremendous, a monumentous task, monumental task. Unfortunately, this was one of those incidences where we see the disciples failing miserably. They completely blew it. But did the Lord leave, leave it like that? Did he say, oh, well, and leave those people hungry? No. He immediately steps in and takes over. First, he acted as an administrator by organizing the throng of people, the crowds of people, into manageable groups of 50. Then he had them sit down, ready to eat, and out of each other's way taking the resources he had 
the disciples claim to be the only ones available, Jesus dedicated them to his father in prayer to his father and then sends his disciples to distribute them among the multitude by breaking and blessing bread and blessing the bread. Jesus was following the customs of Jewish families in mealtime. But what he was also doing here was the same thing he would later commission the church to do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Five individual loaves of bread and two fish provided the entire meal for more than 5,000 people. What Jesus provided wasn't meager substance. He gave, what he gave filled them completely, totally meeting their needs. And to add to that, there were 12 baskets of leftovers that remained. Now, could, as some people have said, could this mean one basket for each of the disciples or one for each of Israel's tribes so that where, whoever came could be sure of being satisfied? John would say that Jesus continues to be the bread of life for people no matter what their number or their need. But let me just say this. When will you be the most blessed? When you watch how the Lord uses your crackers and fish to minister his love to someone else. You may think that you're over your head. You may think you have nothing to say. You may think you can't handle it. But when you see what the Lord does because you simply took the time to pray, share the word with someone, you'll get a whole basket for yourself. You'll get a whole basket yourself. Truly, whatever measure you give out will be given back to you according, and that's what it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Therefore, here's the thing, take seriously every opportunity to help the people who cross your path, who come your way, whether it's a schoolmate or whether it's a, a co-worker, whether it's someone at the grocery store, someone you know struggling with their vehicle in, in, in some random parking lot, whether it's someone at the hospital. Use that opportunity to help them to minister to them, to pray for them. A lot of times my work takes me to, to the hospital and I have to stay in one room the entire night. While I'm there, I'm praying, I'm studying, but I am, I'm, I'm praying for those, everybody else that's in that hospital, those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are dying. I pray that they, that they they be comforted. The Lord will just shine his mercy and his grace upon them. Every time I hear the, the, the sirens of, of an ambulance, I pray for that ambulance that whether they're, if they're carrying someone or if they're on their way to pick up someone or, 
whatever it may be, that they may get there safely and that that person will be healed and that that person will be comforted. It's, it's crazy. I mean, some of the things I see in the hospital. I was in the ER, Providence ER, the other day, and I, I was there with someone that needed to get stitches, and as I was about to leave, this lady comes walking in, crying, sobbing, her, her just completely sobbing, and her face was all bloody, and her hair was all just all over the place, and I don't know what happened, but it was really bad. It just looked really bad. And my heart just sank. And all I could do was pray. And that's okay. That's okay. Minister to them. Help, that's how you can help them. And again, watch and see what God will do both for them and for you. This is this with all kinds of significance. It's one of those verses, one of those passages that you'll hear, you can, if another church or another pastor were to preach it, you'll get a totally different message from it. But again, it's filled with significance for disciples who are charged with the evangelization of the world. The 5,000 represent lost humanity, starving for the bread of God. The disciples' picture uh, helpless Christians with seemingly limited resources, but unwilling to share what they have. The Lord's command, you give them something to eat, is simply a restatement of the Great Commission. The lesson is, is that if we give Jesus what we have, he can multiply it to feed the spiritually hungry multitude. That diamond ring, that insurance policy, that bank account, that sports equipment, these can be converted into gospel literature, for instance, which can in turn result in the salvation of souls who in turn will be worshipers of the Lamb of God throughout eternity. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to do these things. I'm not telling you to go out and sell your house and, and sell your jewelry and sell your life insurance policy and, and, and sell your, your favorite golf clubs. I'm not telling you that. What you do with what God has given you these things, again, that, that God has provided for you, God has blessed you with, is between you and Him. But the point I'm making here is that I want you to imagine how our community, our city, our state, our nation, and our world could be evangelized in this generation if Christians would surrender all to Christ, would surrender to Christ all that they have. This, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is the enduring lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. And as I close here, it's a lot of great lessons. And I know that sounds, it sounds like something I say every week, but it's true. 
some of you, again, are, are, are dealing with a lot and have gone out and, and seen the blessings and have been, you've seen the miracles. You've seen what God has done and and now you're at a place where like people, are, you see people are hurting beside you and people are suffering and are, are hungry spiritually and you're saying, what are we going to do? Jesus is asking you, you feed them. Or maybe some of you or like Herod. Hey, there's this guy out there that I've been hearing about. Is I hear that he helps people and and he something about being born again and and, and what is this all about? And I need to find out more about him. Well, let me tell you. Let me encourage you. Let me lead you to who Christ really is. You may have a misconception, just like, you know, people were telling Herod that Jesus was something that he really wasn't. What I want to do right now, if you're listening and watching, and tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. The one and only Son of God, His only begotten Son that came here to die on the cross for your sins. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you've blown it. You may think you're a good person, but in all reality, Jesus said, no one is good. All of us have sinned. Well, let me tell you, he died to free you from sin. That sin, if it's not forgiven is going to lead you to eternal damnation. It's going to lead you to eternal torment if you don't repent and ask for forgiveness. Jesus offers that forgiveness. If you believe in him, it says in the Bible that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes by him will be saved. Come to him. Believe in him, trust in him, open the doors of your heart. He will save you. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer to, to accept him as your Lord and Savior. So wherever you're at, bow your heads and close your eyes and pray this. Lord, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I admit that I've, I'm a sinner. And I've fallen short the glory of God. Thank you for bringing Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and and I now lay all my sins before him. Thank you for wiping the slate clean and and freeing me and redeeming me and cleansing me from all those sins. Fill me with your spirit now, Lord. I want to be used by you. I want to share with others the good news. Show me how, Lord. Teach me, guide me. Use me as your instrument. Use me for your glory. 
I thank you again for what you did for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and for making me born again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that, contact us. We want to lead you to your next steps in your faith. And those of us that are here, hope that you were encouraged. Hope that you were challenged. In order for you just to be more committed to him. You willing to step up. He's calling you to step up. Will you? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening, or thank you for this study. Thank you for um, your word. Thank you for your love, your forgiveness. Thank you for making us your children, Lord, that we are your children, that we have that privilege of being your children. Lord, at one time we were lost sinners, destined for eternal torment and punishment, but you picked us out. And we accepted you, we accepted the message now we're your children and we are so thankful for that I pray that you will encourage everyone here Lord that you will strengthen them they may be stronger followers of you Lord that they may seek you and and learn from you Lord that they may learn from you more than the things that the, the world wants to teach them. Because then, again, all this is, is all going to be, it's all fading away. But your word will endure forever. Thank you again for your word. We love you. We adore you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.